Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A new warning from children's hospitals. The lead starts right now. In one pediatric hospital, they're seeing a 1,000% increase in the number of kids testing positive for COVID compared with the Delta surge. But does that necessarily mean serious illness for those kids? Does it mean hospitalization or worse? A pediatrician from that hospital is here to explain his biggest concerns. And if you're confused by the new CDC isolation guidance, you are hardly alone. Some health experts today bashing the CDC and the Biden administration about what they say is really driving the changes. Then. You won't catch them cooperating with the January 6th committee. You're more likely to find them flying south to kiss Donald Trump's ring. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our health lead and new questions about the CDC's reduced isolation period guidelines as the U.S. nears an all-time record for daily cases of COVID. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention now suggesting people with COVID should isolate for five days. That's down from 10 As long as they have no symptoms, the CDC insisting the change is motivated by the science, purely the science, they say, which shows you're most contagious in the first few days of your illness if you have COVID. But Dr. Anthony Fauci admitting that the new rules were aimed at least in part at getting people back to work more quickly. The flight attendants union now questioning how much these changes were influenced by pressure from corporate America. And in addition, the president of the nation's largest nursing union predicting the CDC's change will only increase the spread of the virus. CNN's Tom Foreman starts us off today with a closer look at what all of this might mean for you and your family as we head into a new year. Amid the winter weather, the pandemic is roaring across the country with an average of more than 200,000 new cases diagnosed daily. This Omicron variant is such a game changer in terms of its high, high transmissibility. It's like this big... Uh, virus blizzard. Hospitalizations are only about half of what they were last winter, but some states are seeing peaks there too, including among vaccinated medical workers with breakthrough cases. They are being sent home just when demand for their expertise is soaring. That's still an impossible strain on an already strained healthcare system. So I understand the pressure to get workers back earlier. Omicron is spreading so fast, the impact is now going far beyond the widely reported holiday travel problems. All over, college and professional sports are dealing with canceled or postponed games. And hospitals are seeing a surge in cases among children. Not because Omicron is uniquely targeting them, but because... We see children who are hospitalized because of COVID or in the ICU because of COVID. They're all unvaccinated. They're unvaccinated. The parents are unvaccinated. The siblings are unvaccinated. That's why some medical professionals believe the reopening of schools, especially those with thorough COVID safety measures, could reduce the spread among kids, although others are not convinced. I think that what we're going to see is once children go back to school within a week or two of schools opening is when we're going to see our highest numbers. All of this, of course, could be better if simply more people would get vaccinated. But... 
As it stands right now, New York City is saying the doors will open, the bells will ring, they will expect students back in the classes next week, and many schools across the country are expected to follow suit. Jake? All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, the C- Elizabeth, the CDC says the decision is based purely on the science. So you looked into the science. What does it say? So the science says that people are most transmissible, most contagious, Jake, in the time before they have symptoms or in the two to three days after. So the CDC's reasoning is if you have COVID-19, but you're asymptomatic or maybe you are mildly symptomatic and now you're on the mend, why are we keeping you out of work for 10 days when you're probably just transmissible for just two or three days after you have symptoms. Why stay out for 10 days? I've talked to experts who support this. I've talked to experts who don't support this. What they all agree is that the way that the CDC wrote these guidelines, you need probably a degree in law, medicine, public health, and uh, maybe even like Talmudic discourse to understand what they're saying. It's very, very difficult. But here we have tried to boil it down. So if you have COVID-19, if you actually are infected, if you're asymptomatic or you've had symptoms, but they're resolving, you have isolate your, the CDC guidelines say isolate for five days. And then for five more days, you should wear a mask when you are around other people. Now, some of this, a lot of this is really going to be on the honor system. Are people going to own up to being sick? Are they not going to own up to being sick? Are they really going to isolate for five days? There are a lot of question marks around this. But we will note, as you were talking before about corporate influence, certainly Delta Airlines, other companies asking the CDC for this change so that workers could get back to work. Elizabeth, what do the guidelines specifically say about people who have gotten their boosters? Right. So that where that comes in is for people who are exposed. So let's say a family member of yours or a colleague or whomever has COVID-19. You've been exposed. You don't know if you have COVID-19, but you've been exposed. If you've had a booster or if you're less than six months away from your second shot, the CDC says no need for you to quarantine, although they do recommend wearing a mask for 10 days. Now, here's the reasoning behind that. The CDC says that a booster, having three shots, including the booster, is 75% effective at fighting Omicron infection. So again, you know, there are economic concerns here too. The thinking is, why are we keeping people out of work if they've been boosted, they're 75% protected? Uh, Why are we keeping them out of work? That's the reasoning there, Jake. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Here to discuss um, is Dr. Larry Kosiolik. He's a pediatric infectious disease physician and scientist at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. Dr. Kosiolik, thanks for joining us. I, I understand you're seeing, <clears throat> pardon me, a massive surge in the number of kids testing positive for COVID at your hospital. How many positive tests are you seeing? And, and I guess what's most significant, how many of them have to be hospitalized? Yeah, thanks, Jake, for having me. You know, what we've seen around the world, around the country, Chicago is really no different. And and last year, about a year ago, we were seeing about 20 new cases a day. Uh, over the past week and a half, we've seen about 70 new cases per day. And those numbers keep rising every day. We expect them to rise over the next few weeks. Just compared to a few weeks ago, uh, during our Delta surge, we're up roughly 1,000% in the number of cases per day. Um, hospitalizations have, have also surged, uh, not surprisingly. Um, during our peak, we were seeing maybe 20 hospitalizations a week. Uh, we've seen uh, 40 in the past week. Uh, we were only seeing about six a week uh, during the Delta surge. And so the number of kids being admitted to the hospital uh, has gone up quite a bit. Fortunately, um, the number of children needing the intensive care unit 
uh, is the same that it's been uh, over the last um, several months and, and throughout the pandemic. And so the proportion of infections that require the ICU is not increasing, um, but we uh, would anticipate that those numbers will go, go up as we uh, continue to see more cases in children. The kids who are hospitalized, how sick are they? What are their symptoms? Uh, it varies uh, depending on the child. Um, you know, we uh, only um, maybe 10% of the children right now in the hospital require the ICU. And so 90% um, have mild or moderate infections. 7% of our um, hospitalizations, so children that are admitted to our hospital for reasons other than COVID without COVID sy- symptoms are testing positive for COVID. So there's a lot of asymptomatic infections in the community as well. Normally, that's been less than 1%. How many of the kids being admitted to the hospital are already fully vaccinated against COVID? So that's the, another silver lining to this is that, that what we're seeing is, is real-time evidence of how effective vaccines are. Uh, we've uh, so far only seen, um, since we started vaccinating children, uh, one child uh, who was fully vaccinated admitted to the hospital, and that was a, a, a patient with, with multiple comorbidities and risk factors for severity. Uh, and so about 75% of our cases and 50% of our hospitalizations currently are children under the age of five, and so children that aren't even eligible to be vaccinated yet. In Chicago, uh, about 70% of children between age five and 11 are not yet vaccinated. So that's an opportunity uh, for us to expand vaccination in our community and further reduce hospitalizations. So you're seeing real-time evidence that the vaccines prevent children from getting serious COVID and having to go to the hospital. Absolutely. We think because the uh, majority of our infections that we're seeing, mild infections, are in children that are not yet vaccinated. We're seeing real-time evidence that the vaccine is showing protection against the Omicron variant for mild or moderate infections in this age group uh, and substantially effective for preventing hospitalizations in this age, in, in the pediatric age group. Something else that we've been talking about on the show for some time now is the long-term effects of COVID. Tell us about the long-term effects for children who get sick. I understand you're also concerned about this surge in the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which is a serious COVID-related condition. Correct. Oftentimes that that multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, uh, is is the primary driver of of morbidity uh, in children after this infection. And that's something that we typically see two to six weeks after an initial surge. During the Delta surge, we were lucky that we did not see an increase in MISC. We don't really know why. We don't know yet uh, if we're going to see a surge in MISC, but I think over the next few weeks, we'll learn a whole lot more about that. In terms of the long COVID s- symptoms, things like brain fog and, and fatigue and muscle pain um, and other things that, that can be debilitating for adult patients are, are much less common in kids. It's thought that, that fewer than 10% of children will develop symptoms of long COVID. It's been shown in adults uh, that not only do vaccines prevent infection, uh, but in those that do get breakthrough infections from their vaccine, uh, they're about half as likely to get those long COVID uh, symptoms. So again, another reason uh, to get vaccinated. They also say, it's also said, um, doctors have told us on the show uh, that even though it is possible to get COVID, even if one is fully vaccinated and has had a booster, uh, you are less contagious than somebody who is unvaccinated uh, who gets COVID. The people who are, the kids who are under five, who can't get vaccinated, who have contracted COVID and are, a lot of them are, are, uh, a lot of the kids that are hospitalized, you say are under five, um, I don't know if you do contract tracing there, a uh, contact tracing there, but who, do you know who they caught it from? I mean, is there any evidence that the unvaccinated are infecting kids under five who can't even get vaccinated? 
Uh, you know, I don't think we have a, a great data yet with Omicron to know who uh, is infecting whom. Um, we, we know these infections uh, shot up significantly just really in the past 10 days uh, in, in children who are, who are out of the home. Uh, I'm sorry, out of the school setting and, and in home and, and gathering um, with other people that are infected, whether it's their siblings uh, or uh, their caregivers. We, we know that people are going to, um, you know, holiday parties and, and concerts and, and, you know, a lot of events that they weren't doing um, even even several months ago. And, and so there's a lot of opportunity for spread both in the home and outside the home. Uh, we're, we're fairly confident and, and reassured that we've not seen a whole lot of transmission in, in schools, uh, particularly schools that are uh, really taking those risk mitigation measures very, very seriously. Uh, and when you refer to that, you're talking about testing, you're talking about masking, and obviously you're talking about vaccines. Given what we know about how contagious Omicron is and how many kids remain unvaccinated, is it safe for parents, do you think, to send their kids to school in the new year based on what you've seen? You know, I, I think one, that's, that's a personal decision that, that some parents are going to have to evaluate based on um, their child's risks for severe COVID uh, and, and the risks of other people in the home. I think generally schools are very, very safe and oftentimes safer than the community. We saw last year in Chicago that cases uh, spiked between Thanksgiving uh, and, and the new year. Uh, and as soon as schools started, uh, cases in, in children declined. And, and when we, our research team went into schools in Chicago and, and looked, we, we saw very little to no evidence now since of, of transmission, that is. Now, since that time, there's been the Delta variant and now the Omicron variant. And so we'll have to um, see what happens over the next several weeks. But based on what we know, um, the masks, uh, the contact tracing, the testing, uh, all of those things um, prevent transmission and should be just as effective for Omicron as they have been for other variants. And so uh, I'm, I'm confident that school is very, very safe. Uh, and um, uh, as, a, as a parent, I, I plan on, on sending uh, my children uh, back to school with, without concerns uh, of transmission. Yeah, not to mention, of course, the, the damaging effects of keeping kids out of school uh, in terms of academics and emotional and psychological damage. Uh, Dr. Uh, Larry Kosiolik, thank you so much for your time. Thank you uh, for the important work you do. Great. Thanks, Jay. COVID can stay in your heart and your brain for more than a half a year, according to a new study. Why that is concerning for America's economic recovery. Plus, Russia trying to sweep away some of its ugly past by silencing a major human rights organization. Stay with us. In our money lead now, a complicated picture for the U.S. economy. The stock market is up, so are holiday sales. But with Omicron surging, airlines are canceling thousands of flights. Restaurant reservations are slowing. Many businesses are frankly struggling to keep employees at work, all of which could slow what has been up until now a decent economic recovery. Let's bring in Mark Zandi, chief economist for Moody's Analytics. And Mark, we, we have seen some good economic news without question. How much do you think Omicron is going to stop or even reverse that? Well, it's going to hurt, uh, Jake. Uh, you know, Delta, when that hit back in the fall, that shaved about four percentage points off of growth, GDP growth. That's the valuable, the things we produce in the third quarter, uh, it you know, kind of bounced right back when Delta started to fade later in the fall, and that's why we ended up having a really good Christmas buying season. So I expect Omicron to do about the same. I think that's a uh, Delta's a pretty good case study here. So I would expect Q1 growth, the, the quarter in the beginning of 2022, to be on the soft side. I don't think we'll get a negative number, but you know, it'll be soft. And then as the Omicron wave passes, and hopefully it passes through quickly here will bounce right back in uh, the spring quarter of uh, 2022. So 
you know, the, the, the general picture here is an economy that's generally improving, but, you know, it's kind of trying to navigate through these waves of the pandemic and each wave does does some damage to the economy in the recovery. Right. And the Biden administration um, taking, I guess you could call it a lighter touch when it comes to how to handle this new variant. Uh, they've actually reduced uh, quarantine times. Uh, and in some cases, they've foregone restrictions on social distancing, presumably uh, focusing on keeping the economy moving. Um, do you agree with those measures and as an economist? And, and is that going to be enough to, to keep the economy moving in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, of course, Jake, there's trade-offs, and I don't have all the information to know what uh, the best trade-offs here are. But, you know, I, I do think uh, it does make sense to try to keep the economy moving here as best we can. I think it's fair to say that we're doing a pretty good job. You know, if you think back, you know, we've been at this for now two years. Each wave that hits us does damage, but a little less damage than the previous wave. And that's because we adjust, we adapt, we make changes, we learn. And I think the CDC change here in the isolation period is just, you know, one more adaptation that will make it the pain, the economic pain and suffering here a little less significant. You know, the other thing that I think we'll see is businesses they'll be better able to manage their supply chains. You know, Delta did a, a real, created real havoc for supply chains around the world. That's why we've seen shortages here and inflation take off. Uh, but I suspect uh, with that experience, businesses, you know, will know where the bottlenecks are and will manage them a little bit better. So we'll still see some, you know, shortages as a result of this. The supply chains will still be disrupted, but, but less so. So, I, you know, I think we're making progress here, you know, with each new wave. The, the disruptions to the healthcare system and economy are less, less significant than the previous wave. And I expect that to continue. All right, Mark Zandi, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Happy New Year to you. Re- researchers are looking sure thing. into a new study from the National Institutes of Health that finds that COVID can spread to the entire body within days and stay in the heart, the brain, and other organs for as long as eight months. This is what you've heard some experts refer to as long covid And there's still so much to learn about long COVID symptoms and impact. Let's discuss now with Dr. Ziad Al-Ali. He's Chief of Research and Development at the VA St. Louis Healthcare System in Missouri. Uh, Doctor, um, this study has not been peer-reviewed yet, but you've called this remarkably important work. Explain what the long-term effects of COVID are and how vulnerable the general population is to, to getting it. Well, we've known for, for some time now, first of all, thank you for having me. What we've known for some time is that a lot of people after they quote unquote recover from the acute COVID, that's the first 30 days of COVID or the first 30 days of infection, they go on, some of them go on to develop, uh, you, know, you know, continued weakness or lingering fatigue, brain fog. We've also found that, that people are coming down with new onset kidney disease, diabetes and heart disease. What this study from NIH is telling us is that this virus that we thought of as a respiratory virus, as a lung virus, or a respiratory inf- produces a respiratory infection, is really more of a systemic virus that affects nearly every organ in the body. So wh- wherever they looked, they looked at the brain, they looked at the lung, the pancreas, the kidneys, and the liver, there was evidence of damage in those organs. There was actually evidence of lingering virus weeks and months after the initial infection in, in, in those organs. Uh, in terms of like who really you know uh, is at risk of long COVID, it, it can affect nearly everybody. It, it can affect, as you you know, in the point out in the earlier segment, it can affect children, it can affect adults, it can affect you know older adults, affect males and females. So really, nobody is spared the effect of long COVID. How many Americans do you think are suffering uh, from long COVID right now? 
So we estimate it's in the millions. Uh, you know, the estimates are about anywhere between four and ten percent of people who got in COVID now are having symptoms or sequelae related to long COVID. Because COVID affected so many people, we estimate that at least three or four million Americans now, at the very least, you know, have long COVID. And what we really worry about is that you know, long COVID is not only like weakness and fatigue that might resolve with time. It is resulting in some people and in, in heart, heart conditions or heart disease, diabetes and kidney disease. Those things last a lifetime. Those people, those things will will literally scar people for a lifetime. And naturally, we think has really huge con- consequences and we need to be prepared for that. So far, the science has been telling us that Omicron has a lesser degree of severity than previous strains. Does, does that mean that there's less of a chance of getting long COVID if one tests positive for the Omicron variant? So that is possible. That's a plausible hypothesis. But but we're, we're just lear- still learning about Omicron and still also learning about the long-term consequences of Omicron. So it's possible that a less severe acute infection from Omicron will reduce the risk of long COVID. But that really remains to be tested yet. Do vaccinations or boosters uh, play any role in preventing long COVID as they do in preventing COVID in general? Well, what we know about long COVID now is that the best way to avoid long COVID is to avoid COVID in the first place. So if, if people have not been vaccinated, please go get vaccinated. If you haven't gotten boosted, please go get boosted. The best way to avoid really what we think is like the horrible long COVID, it's really a horrible condition that, 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 that may scar people for a lifetime, is really to avoid COVID in the first place. And get we think that's really enormously important. Um, when it comes to like, if, if you've already gotten COVID and gotten long COVID, we've seen some evidence, anecdotal evidence, uh, which means that really only, you know, smaller reports suggesting that some people are reporting amelioration or improvement in symptoms after getting vaccinated. So, so vaccination helps. All right, Dr. Ziad Al-Ali, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Coming up, they won't accept an invitation to testify before the January 6th committee, but send them an invitation to a certain private club down in Florida? Well, they might show up there. Stay with us. In our politics lead, we finally have uh, something of a timeline for when the House Select Committee investigating the deadly Capitol riot will reveal what its members have been working on behind closed doors for so long. CNN has learned that the panel is aiming to have an interim report with its initial findings out by summer, with the final report likely out before next year's midterm elections. Meanwhile, Trump's fiercest loyalists continue to refuse to cooperate and tell the truth. They are defying subpoenas and stonewalling the committee's investigation, even under threat of potential criminal prosecution for contempt of Congress. And as CNN's Sarah Murray reports for us now, many of these Trump acolytes have decided they don't want to risk their often lucrative standing with Donald Trump, especially as he teases another possible run for president. Dan Scavino, everybody, the famous Dan Scavino. Defying Congress, evading questions and praising the former president. A consistent strategy emerging among some Trump loyalists when it comes to January 6th. As the House Select Committee struggled in October to serve former Trump aide Dan Scavino with a subpoena, Scavino took to Twitter. The dangerous and false narrative of me trying to avoid or evade a subpoena is a disgrace. Not one attempt was made to contact serve me when I was at Mar-a-Lago for six days. Scavino, who was eventually served, hired a lawyer quietly engaged with the committee and still has not testified. 
His status as a witness is in limbo. Scavino's allegiance to Trump is on full display. In a December jaunt to Mar-a-Lago, at Game 4 of the World Series in Atlanta, and at an October rally in Iowa. Hello, Iowa, and I'm thrilled to be back. Where Trump railed against the committee. The left's new obsession is the unselect committee. They have an unselect committee. As the committee seeks information about roles Trump allies played up to or during the events of January 6th, some loyalists like Scavino are slow-walking, stonewalling, or snubbing the committee, all while doubling down on their allegiance to Trump as he ponders another run for office. That is 100 percent of the calculation. Um, what is the death grip on the Republican Party right now? is the, the idea of Donald Trump running again in 2024 and people not wanting to risk losing their stature with him. Roger Stone, a longtime Trump ally and sometimes political advisor, pleaded the fifth rather than answer the committee's questions. Uh, I did my civic duty and I responded as required by law. After Stone's last appearance before lawmakers in 2017 during the Russia probe. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He was convicted on charges of lying to and obstructing Congress and witness tampering. Trump pardoned him. Recently, Stone popped up at a Mar-a-Lago event and posted about chatting with Trump. Donald Trump is my first, second, and third choice for 2024. For some would-be witnesses, their fealty to Trump comes at a higher price. The House recommended contempt charges for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who is now suing the committee. This is about Donald Trump and about actually going after him once again. Despite Meadows' work to curry favor with Trump, a source tells CNN their relationship has been strained, both from embarrassing revelations in Meadows' book and the fallout from some documents he gave the select committee before he stopped cooperating. If you think they're going to give you your country back without a fight, you are sadly mistaken. Right-wing firebrand and Trump ally Steve Bannon was charged with criminal contempt of Congress after defying a committee subpoena. He pleaded not guilty and appears to be wearing his resistance as a badge of honor. I have a previous engagement that I can't get out of. Uh, Peter, you're going to be talking about... <laughs> the master of the understatement. About, you're going to be talking about... You're going to be talking about... You got your wrist ready for the cuffs today. While Bannon's relationship with Trump often runs hot and cold, Bannon is still clear about his loyalty. We're going to hit the beach. You know, you have the landing teams and the beachhead teams, all that nomenclature they use when, 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 when President Trump uh, wins again in 2024 or before. Now, roughly a dozen folks have filed lawsuits already challenging the committee's legitimacy. But a spokesperson for the committee points out that what they are trying to do here is provide the American public answers about a violent attack on democracy. And they note that hundreds of witnesses have complied either voluntarily or to subpoenas and provided testimony to this committee, Jake. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Coming up, the new rule from the Taliban returning women in Afghanistan to something of the dark ages. Stay with us. In our world lead, the harsh aftermath of the U.S. exit from Afghanistan and subsequent Taliban takeover continues. The repressive, misogynist government of religious zealots has now banned women from traveling long distances alone, demanding that a close male relative accompany them if the trip is longer than 45 miles. One Kabul resident telling the BBC, quote, the Taliban captured our happiness from us. I have lost both my independence and happiness. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Peter Meyer from Michigan. He's an army reservist who served in Iraq and he worked with aid organizations in Afghanistan. He sits on the House Homeland Security and Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, uh, good to see you as always. So um, President Biden just signed the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, the big Pentagon spending bill. It includes a, quote, multi-year independent Afghanistan war commission to examine the war in Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrawal. 
What do you hope to learn from this report? What do you want to know? I personally want to make sure that we never repeat those same mistakes when it comes to aligning our intelligence, defense, diplomatic, and development communities. You know, I think we saw over the course of that 20-year conflict, you know, 21-year wars being fought back to back to back, very little institutional knowledge being carried on, and an ever-changing mission set that really undermined what we were hoping and relying upon through the withdrawal, was that there was a stable government that had some legitimacy. And the, the rapidity with which it collapsed was really evidence of just the failure of that entire 20-year project. Take a listen to what your fellow veteran and fellow congressman, Democrat Jason Crow, told us yesterday. There's got to be a very different model for ensuring our national security, for promoting democracy overseas, but not doing it using the military as our primary tool. Do you agree that there's a larger lesson here um, beyond just the specifics of the Afghanistan withdrawal in terms of how the U.S. wields power uh, internationally? 100 percent. I think the way in which we've been operating with a military first approach is fine if it's a problem that can be solved by dropping bombs. But what we've seen over the past two decades of the war on terror is that dropping bombs is not enough. That is a tactic. And a tactic absent a strategy is just pointless effort being expended. If we look at the way that China is using their One Belt, One Road initiative to really expand their reach into parts of Latin America, into Africa, uh, into other parts of Asia, that has been tremendously affected by leveraging economic and trade might. And that is an area where the U.S. has really been lacking is when we prioritize hard power, soft power falls by the wayside. And that's really where we have a tremendous ability to not only catch up to what China has been doing, but surpass them in the 21st century. The BBC also reports that the Taliban have banned uh, showing women in TV dramas in Afghanistan. They're now requiring female journalists in Afghanistan to wear headscarves. Do you feel as though all of the American effort, particularly by the way, during the Bush administration, which really made it a priority, um, to uh, embolden women, to, to get them roles in the military in Afghanistan, to have prominent jobs, to be, uh, if not equally re- respected members of Afghan society, at least uh, to make progress in that direction. Do, do you think that's all been completely undone? I don't think it's been completely undone. There are still some green shoots that are there. There are you know, plenty of protests, um, female activists in the streets pushing back against the Taliban, you know, showing a type of courage and bravery that's incredibly hard to fathom. You know, I think there's a generation that has been raised with differing expectations and the new Afghan government, the Taliban, they have to reconcile with that. Now, I think there's still an opportunity for that reconciliation to be ultimately positive. Again, not the world in which we would have hoped it to be. We're not living in a good and bad scenario. We're living with bad and worse. But one of the challenges is that the Biden administration in choosing to completely forget Afghanistan and wanting to leave it in the rear view, they're not just leaving some of the mistakes that were made in the past, but they are also consigning these female activists to a darker, harsher future than if the U.S. was engaged trying to make sure that what next phase in Afghanistan, what that next phase looks like is one that is the best of the worst scenarios that we're seeing, rather than just accepting the worst case, you know, bar none. 1,450 Afghan children were evacuated without their parents, we're told. It's unclear how or even if those families will be reunited. The Department of Homeland Security and the State Department have not responded to CNN's questions about the process for family reunifications for these Afghan children. What does the Biden administration need to do right now to to kickstart these reunifications? Show an ounce of political will, 
uh, have President Biden make this a priority? Again, we have been working with the State Department, with the Department of Homeland Security throughout the interagency process on not just the evacuations that took place, but the ongoing evacuations that need to occur. And they have been you know, a stymieing slow force at every turn. And it all flows down from the fact that at the top in the Oval Office with the president, there is no sense of urgency. There is no sense of compassion or concern for those that were left behind. And until that changes, uh, we're going to continue to see the delayed, drawn out and frankly, deadly process that we've seen so far. And there remain Afghan allies stuck in the increasingly unstable country. Do you get any sense that the effort to evacuate them has stalled? It, it is if this isn't stalling, I don't know what it is. It has been incredibly difficult. There's one case, uh, a personal friend of mine that I've been working on for almost four months now, uh, and it's been pulling teeth. And that's with a member of Congress who sits on the committee that oversees the State Department, you know, hitting that brick wall. So it is, again, we're not seeing anything happening that we need to see happening. We're hearing the right words, we're getting the right promises, but that's not translating into action, or at least action at the pace that it needs to, because of a lack of political will from the Biden administration and specifically from President Biden himself. All right, Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan, uh, thank you so much. Good to see you. As always, Happy New Year to you and your wife. Thank you, Jake. Happy New Year. Sometimes the truth hurts. A group fighting to expose Russia's brutal past is the latest victim of Vladimir Putin's crackdown. Stay with us. In our world lead today, the U.S. and Russia say they will hold high-level discussions as tensions between the two countries rise over Moscow's military buildup along its border with Ukraine. The White House says these talks are scheduled for January 10th. Meanwhile, the Putin government is ramping up its crackdown on its own people, as CNN's Melissa Bell reports. One of the country's oldest and most prominent human rights organizations has been ordered by Russia's highest court to shut down, a move that is sparking worldwide condemnation, including from the U.S. State Department, which is calling on Moscow to end its harassment of independent voices. In For Alexei Yex, this is history. The little things that survived the gulags and that will have been treasured all the more by those who'd lost everything. They want to leave. They want to remind, remember their house, remember the normal life. People like Grigory Ivanov, Alexei's great-grandfather, who never made it back from the gulag he was sent to during the Stalinist purges of the 1930s. Here in the basement of Memorial in central Moscow, he explains that it was thanks to the organization which specializes in investigating Soviet-era crimes that he was able to learn the truth about his family and why that matters. History, he says, is cyclical. Because uh, our situation today was in the past a few times, and uh, such things can came back, and uh, this is awful, I think. So we should remember it and keep it, keep it warm in our minds, I think. But the government wants it shut down. It accuses it of breaking the foreign agents law, which has increasingly been used to close down organizations that are not in line with the government's thinking. Unfortunately, Memorial has repeatedly committed violations, and as the document given to me reads, it did so defiantly. At risk, the 100,000 boxes of archives the organization has gathered since it was created as the Soviet Union began to crumble. 
In each of these boxes is someone's story. So many letters were destroyed. But thanks to the ones we have here, we can learn more about what life in the Gulag was like from those who were there. Uh, its main function was uh, the garage. But it isn't just documents. Memorial also takes people on tours. From the Lubyanka building that once housed the KGB to this courtyard behind another secret police building yeah. where 15,000 executions are believed to have yeah, taken something, place. Something like that. The story, this history is our uh, uh, huge like social trauma. And uh, you can get past that, by that trauma if you talk about it. The author and journalist Andrei Kolesnikov says the problem is that Memorial has become an obstacle to the current government's determination to glorify Russia's past. Uh, individual memories uh, which are struggling with uh, official memory because uh, there are a lot of families which suffered uh, from uh, Stalinism and uh, they are keeping uh, that memory. Uh, and they are grateful to Memorial. Families like Alexei's. Where there had been shameful silence, he says, now there is truth. I think the history is not just the history of the state and politics. Uh, history is the history of families, of people. And this is the real history without final cuts. <laughs> Melissa Bell, CNN, Moscow. Also in our world lead, today marks three years since American Paul Whelan was falsely imprisoned by Russian authorities. Whelan, a former U.S. Marine, was detained while visiting a Moscow hotel in December 2018, arrested on bogus espionage charges, charges he vehemently denies. He was convicted and sentenced to 16 years in prison in June 2020 in a trial which U.S. officials denounced as completely unfair. The U.S. State Department today marked this horrible anniversary, saying in a statement that Whelan's release, as well as that of Trevor Reed, quote, remains a vital priority for the United States. Coming up, it's not easy to find at-home rapid COVID tests. We're going to talk to one scientist who says she created a rapid test weeks after the pandemic started. But you know what? You still can't get it. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our health lead. And this dire warning, January is going to be a, quote, really, really hard month as the Omicron variant continues to explode. Those words coming from... Brown University's Dr. Ashish Jha, who says Americans should brace themselves, ourselves now, for many, many more COVID infections. And while Dr. Jha notes most people who are vaccinated and boosted will not get severe illness, that will not be true for many of the unvaccinated. Despite being nearly two years into this pandemic, scenes such as this one are still playing out across the country. This new video showing dozens of people waiting in a line that stretches around a strip mall in Willingsboro, New Jersey, all of those individuals hoping to just get a COVID test. Moments ago, Connecticut's governor announced that he is calling up nearly 100 National Guard soldiers and airmen and women to help distribute COVID at-home tests and N95 masks over the next few weeks. Today, there is new pushback as well after the CDC shortened the isolation period for some people who test positive from COVID from 10 days to just five. CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now. Some health experts worry this could lead to even more coronavirus cases. It's like this big uh, virus blizzard that I call a firestorm. 
As COVID cases surge, a balancing act from the CDC. New guidance cutting down the isolation period from 10 days to 5 days for infected people who are asymptomatic or with symptoms resolving could critically help keep the lights on. It aims to help put people back on the job. We're also now risking a big decline in essential services because we need our, we need our first responders and so many others to keep the country uh, going. But it also comes with concerns from some health experts over whether there's a safety cost. The trouble is for the unvaccinated, the data doesn't really back up that they become non-infectious at five days. The isolation guidance doesn't differentiate between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. It does say everyone should mask up for five days following isolation. And there's mounting pushback from union leaders, from nurses... This is when you should be tightening your controls, not lessening them. To flight attendants. The CDC should be loud and clear about implementation here because no worker should be forced to come to work uh, when they are still sick. And that is, I believe, what we are going to see here. We're very concerned about that. The wave of infections sweeping the country, causing staffing shortages and forcing cancellations of thousands of flights during the busy holiday travel period. Apple closing its New York City stores for browsing. Maryland cutting back their federal court operations. The CDC now says the fast-moving Omicron variant likely accounts for fewer than 60 percent of COVID cases nationwide, down from a previous estimate of 73 percent. Both variants expected to fuel a post-holiday spike. The wait for tests still insufferably long in some areas, while the shortage of at-home tests won't get fixed quickly enough. I hope we fix it in January and February, but we're going to have to have a real effort to make sure there's plentiful, cheap, ubiquitous testing everywhere in the country. That's where we should be in this pandemic right now. And Jake, the Biden administration is lifting travel restrictions on eight Southern African countries later this week. Those restrictions were implemented last month. The administration now noting the restrictions are no longer necessary, pointing to the fact that Omicron is now present in about 100 countries and prevalent right here in the U.S. Jake. All right, Alexander Field, thanks so much. Let's go live to one of those testing sites now. CNN's Leila Santiago is at one of the busiest locations in South Florida. And Leila, I understand uh, officials there are seeing a massive increase in people wanting tests even bigger than from the peak of the Delta surge. That's correct. You're talking about about a 50% increase in the demand for testing compared to the peak of what we saw during that Delta wave. So let's go over the numbers. Where we are right now, as you mentioned, the busiest testing site in South Florida, they administered nearly 9,000 tests yesterday, 60,000 across all the sites that are run by the county here. And when I talked to workers today about this, they expect this level of demand to continue into the new year. It's almost like COVID started all over again. So with the influx of patients that are coming through, a lot of people aren't feeling well. So that's why they're coming to us. And then we also understand we have a lot of patients that are concerned, you know, just, oh, I was exposed or I was next to somebody who was exposed. I just want to make sure that I'm okay. So how long will you wait if you come to this testing site? That will vary anywhere from three to five hours in the car line.
And Layla, Miami-Dade was giving out at-home COVID tests at public libraries, but you tell us they've run out after only two days? Right. They did two days of distribution at 27 public libraries. They distributed about 152 thousand at-home test kits uh, and they've run out and so they have a new request now into the department of health for more of those test kits hmm. all right Layla santiago thank you so much joining us now to discuss is irene bosch she's a scientist at massachusetts institute of technology she's featured in a new article by propublica titled this scientist created a rapid test just weeks into the pandemic Here's why you still cannot get it, unquote. Dr. Bosch, I want to ask you about your COVID test in a sec. But first, I want to start with where we are as a country right now. People across the nation struggling to find COVID tests if they can find sites. Some are forced to wait hours to even get tested. We're nearly two years into this pandemic. Surely we should have figured this out by now, no? Absolutely. We're really behind, for sure. We're really behind in comparison to Europe and Asia. So, yes, we are not doing well, but that, that's not new. Right? We so, know that. So let's discuss the test that you came out with. Um, when was your test finished? How quickly could you have had it mass produced? Yeah, so everything started around April of 2020. And by, let's say, August, we had made our first kinds of tests and then we made by um let's say october september this other kind of test that everybody knows that shows the two bands when you have covid so for sure we're talking about a test that could could have been in the public in the hands of the public very much early um and in 2020 and now we are finalizing 2021 and there's not enough tests as we all know so yeah it it, it is a huge delay. I assume you did trials with COVID patients to see <clears throat> to see how effective the test could have been in a real world situation. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we were lucky enough to work with three hospitals in Florida, and those hospitals report the data. We collected the data and submitted that to to the FDA. At the time, FDA was looking for a ninety percent corresponding positives of the antigen test with PCR, which is kind of a hard thing to understand, but basically how many positives are in the test that also pop positive in PCR. And today, a year later, they they downgraded that 90% to 80%. So evidently they were they were probably in the wrong track of asking too, too much for these tests to, to be accurate. And they are really accurate. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, they're very accurate if you do it more than one day. So 24 hours, you do the first test that can reach the same accuracy as PCR. So that's super remarkable. So obviously to get this to market, you needed sign-off from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. What happened when you tried to get them to offer, uh, to allow that for under emergency use authorization? Because obviously there's a lot of bureaucracy that happens in the government in general, but you know when there's an emergency like this, they speed it up. They did that with the vaccines. What happened with your test? So, so the main problem was to understand that in order to validate a test, depends on how much virus that person has, and that also depends on the day in the course of the disease. So you start with little virus, the next day you have huge amount of viruses, and you study that amount of virus for about six days, not five, like we, like we just heard today. 
actually five is too short. It should be seven, to be honest. So then it starts tapering down. So what we wanted FDA to hear us is to show, and we wanted to show FDA that depending on the viral load, the test was excellent, but if you go to the tails, that test does not perform. No, no test can perform in those tails, either the beginning or the end of the disease. And they were not considering that. They were actually asking for just a number, uh, a bulk number of performance, regardless of where the amount of virus was. So the FDA declined so to... Make- Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that was basically a, a huge problem. And in order to do that, there is a you know, technique called PCR. And that PCR has actually a number called CT. It's like cycle numbers. And depending on those cycle numbers, you know how much virus you have. Mm-hmm. In a test like antigen test, it's similar. You can see how much virus you have by looking at the intensity of a band. So if you look at like a like a band that comes up in here, right. the more red, the more... Then. So basically, they were not interested in, in that. They were interested in just like a bulk result, which huh. by the... It, you know, so that's the, a problem because depending on where you are in, the, in your patient population, your performance will change. So the FDA declined to specifically comment on your exact task to ProPublica, but they said in a statement, quote, unfortunately, many submissions the FDA has received for home tests include incomplete or poor data, and it is the FDA's responsibility to protect the public health by declining to authorize poorly performing tests or those without complete data. If the FDA received a home test that the data and science supported in early to mid-2020, we would have quickly authorized it, unquote. So there's, they seem to be suggesting that there was something lacking uh, with, with the data at the very least. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm saying that they were making the best they could. Unfortunately, they did not have the experience that is necessary to tackle a, a pandemic. They're good at, like, diagnostic tests, but for... Pandemic mitigation, you also need tests that are not just diagnostic, but are for monitoring, for tracking, for, you know, uh, sending them home. They didn't have any of those. So unfortunately, in that statement, what is missing is the fact that FDA did not acknowledge, they did not look at pockets of viral load. They were just looking at a whole performance. They could have said, okay, how good is your test for this amount of virus? How good is your test for this middle amount of virus? They didn't ask for that. Hmm. They, they were lacking that knowledge of how to validate a test, really. Irene Bosch, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up, a timeline that we might get uh, for when we might get the answers to who was behind the insurrection, what we know now, and when we will learn more. Plus, tragedy caught on camera. The family responds to the new police body cam video showing how their daughter was killed in a department store dressing room, apparently by accident. In our politics lead, the committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection plans to share its findings with the public around the middle of next year. A source tells CNN that a report with initial findings, an interim report, will be released this summer before the final report due in the fall. Joining us now, CNN's justice correspondent, Jessica Schneider. Jessica, 
What should we expect to see in this interim initial report? Yeah, Jake, this will be about the committee finally pulling back the curtain, if you will, to showcase all of the work it's been doing over the past several months, because almost all of its work so far has been behind closed doors. The committee, as we know, has conducted hundreds of private interviews with witnesses. That includes former Trump aides, Stop the Steal rally organizers, and election officials who were pressured by Trump allies to overturn the 2020 election results. But so far, the public has only been privy to one public hearing. That was back in July, and it featured that gripping testimony from officers who were defending the Capitol January 6th. So this initial report, it's expected by summer, a final report expected in the fall, and this will really flesh out more of what the committee has uncovered. And in addition, committee members are planning for public hearings next year. Members say that will help outline the real story of what unfolded January 6th. So really, Jake, 2022 will jumpstart a new phase for the committee where it really ramps up its investigation and focuses on laying out all that it's found out for the public. And we're also learning that a federal judge, one uh, appointed by uh, former President President Trump has greenlit a case to move forward uh, with prosecution against uh, four leaders of the pro-Trump extremist group, the Proud Boys. Tell us the significance of this ruling. Yeah, so this is one of those marquee cases from January 6th. Four leading members of the Proud Boys, they've been charged in this conspiracy case. And now the judge is telling prosecutors that the case can move forward and he won't dismiss it, despite arguments from the Proud Boys that they claim their actions were constitutionally protected. You mentioned this is a Trump-appointed judge. He's rejected the Proud Boys' claim that the riot was protected by the First Amendment. This is what Judge Timothy Kelly wrote. He said, defendants are not, as they argue, charged with anything like burning flags, wearing black armbands, or participating in mere sit-ins or protests. Moreover, even if the charged conduct had some expressive aspect, it lost whatever First Amendment protection it may have had. Interestingly, Judge Kelly is now the fourth federal judge to side with prosecutors, allowing a case like this to move forward. And it really gives a win and some momentum for prosecutors as they gear up for the first trials about January 6th. Jake, those are set to start up in February very soon. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congresswoman from Virginia, Abigail Spanberger. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with the insurrection investigation. Uh, You're not on the committee, but you are a former federal law enforcement officer. Do you expect that the committee, the interim report or the final report, will offer an undeniable link between Trump's actions or inactions and an actual crime? I think that what we will see come out of the committee, and and as your reporter mentioned, there have been hundreds of interviews, thousands of documents that have been subpoenaed. And so laying that out for the public is going to be incredibly important for us, for the American public, uh, to be able to understand what happened that day. And certainly I was in the House chamber when the attack began. I was there for the entirety of the insurrection until police were able to take control of the building. And I can tell you it was an awful day. Um, And so to have that information laid out publicly, to have public hearings, uh, will put forth video and documentation that hasn't previously been seen by the public and make a very clear uh, argument and understanding of what happened on that day and leading up to it. So I am appreciative of the committee's work and I look forward uh, to the public hearings that they'll be having in the in the spring for that purpose so that we as an American public can understand uh, without equivocation what happened on that day. Your Republican colleagues, uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, have been called in to speak with the House committee and in investigating the insurrection. 
But both of them have essentially said they're not going to come. They're not going to testify. Should the committee, in your view, subpoena them if they keep refusing or ultimately even vote to hold them in criminal contempt of Congress if they refuse to cooperate? Um, What do you think? I think that Congress, uh, this select committee was tasked with the duty of understanding what led up to January 6th, what occurred on that day. And they have put calls out to individuals who have knowledge, who have information, and who may be connected uh, with the events of that day or certainly the planning and the lead up to it. I would hope that any person, particularly an elected member of Congress, who had any knowledge of or information that might be of use to the select committee would willingly come forward and provide it, uh, particularly if that's information that might exonerate them. So I think it's deeply troubling that any member of Congress would not want to present themselves willingly uh, and provide whatever information that they may have. And I do think that it's appropriate that we members of Congress take whatever steps are necessary to ensure that the duty of this select committee that the subpoena power of this select committee is respected and that anyone who wants to disobey the law um, is treated accordingly. Um, It's as as simple as that, frankly. Are you worried at all about a precedent being set, uh, given the fact that House Republicans are already anticipating that they will, if, if, you know, history is any guide, recapture the House uh, in November of 2022 uh, and seek revenge? They've already been talking about uh, kicking Democrats off committees the way that uh, uh, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene have been kicked off committees uh, by the House of Representatives under a Democratic majority. In reality, the, the concerns that I have about precedents being set is the fact that we have people who are elected members of Congress who deny the events of January 6th. That in and of itself is a dangerous precedent. The fact that we have elected members of Congress who deny that it was violent, that it that there were police officers who were beaten, who make outrageous claims against the brave men and women of law enforcement, Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police Department officers who were beaten with flagpoles, with fire extinguishers, more than 150 of them who required medical care, and some of whom have, were, have been unable uh, to return to the job. So I think we're already in a place where there's terrible precedent being set by the fact that there are uh, colleagues on the other side of the aisle who deny that reality, deny the danger, and certainly do not respect uh, the constitutional duty that Congress had that day to certify the election uh, and continue to traffic in dangerous conspiracy theories that um, continue to propagate throughout our communities uh, and 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 make light of what was one of the most dangerous days for our American democracy. Do your constituents still still ask you about January 6th and the insurrection? I, it depends on the environment, the place, the topic uh, that that's coming up, and where I'm visiting. Um, certainly, I think in in the early days, in the aftermath, when it was all over the news, uh, it was a topic that was raised very frequently. Um, certainly. With the ebbs and flows of the pandemic, the Delta variant, the Omicron variant, the challenges that people are facing with kids returning to school in the fall um, and you know, challenges across the board that, that Americans continue to face. I know most of my conversations really do impact uh, and focus on the issues that impact um, uh, you know, the economy, the pocketbook, the table, uh, kitchen table issues for my constituents. But it is an issue that I hear about across the board, and particularly with veterans, particularly with those who have served, and particularly with those who know what it is to raise their hand in obligation, swearing an oath to a constitution, 
those who understand the danger that we faced on that day and the danger that continues to exist for our democracy as long as there are elected members of Congress and a former president who deny that danger. Um, I do hear about it across my district in that context. I know there's redistricting going on in Virginia right now in your congressional seat and whether you're going to stay in the seventh district or be moved into the first is still something that you're looking into. It just came out a few minutes ago. But is it your intention, generally speaking, to run for reelection, whether you're in the seventh or the first or whatever congressional district you end up in? Uh, Jake, you're right. The maps just came out just a few minutes ago. I'm definitely running for reelection. I intend to continue my service to our country, to my community uh, and to the Commonwealth of Virginia. Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, Democrat of Virginia, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. How the response to COVID could shape political power in Washington and define the Biden presidency. Stay right there. In our politics lead, President Biden's political future is tied to getting the virus under control and to keeping the U.S. economy moving. So what does that mean, given the new CDC guidance and the quarantine times and employees and everything going on with Omicron? Let's discuss. Kirsten, uh, let me start with you. Back in January, the Biden administration vowed to shut down COVID. Uh, It appears that they underestimated the virus's staying power. Um, What do you make of how they're handling it, these, these last minute changes to travel restrictions, quarantine lengths, testing, uh, how is this going to affect uh, his reelection chances and the Democrats' chances in 2022? Well, in terms of his reelection, I think it's it's too soon to be making any predictions about that. We are only one year into his presidency, and um, I think in terms of the midterms, we'll have to see uh, because. I have to say, I don't think that it's been that stellar in terms of how they've handled things. And obviously, the biggest problem has been the testing. And this is something that the administration was really caught flat-footed on. And the president has admitted as much, but it's still not entirely clear why that happened when other countries were able to be prepared for this in a way the United States wasn't. And to have it, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a shock to anybody that during the holidays people will be traveling, right? And that's really when people do test the most, uh, when, they're, when they're traveling and they're going to be exposed to a lot of different people. And so I think that this does not uh, reflect well in terms of the handling, at least of that aspect of the situation. And Ramesh, it appears the Biden administration thought that we could, as a country, vaccinate our way out of this crisis, which I understand why one might think that. And certainly Operation Warp Speed started under Trump and then uh, the the expedited uh, push of the vaccines by the Biden administration has been a great success. But there's been a lot of other things that have not gone as as well. Um, What do you think? So I agree with Kirsten. I think that the lack of cheap, rapid mass testing is looking like a worse and worse failure of U.S. policy. Um, Under now we've had a Republican and a Democratic administration running our COVID policy, uh, and we've got this continuing problem, and it just shows up in area after area. So, for example, we've got the CDC with its new guidelines saying you only have to isolate for five days. And the big question mark there is why isn't there a requirement for a negative COVID test before you come out of isolation? And the answer is because we don't 
have the mass testing capacity. But that's a choice. It's not something that was we were fated to have to have. Yeah, and, and, and it's something that Biden rightly criticized the last administration for, and then didn't didn't come up with a better answer. And, and Kirsten, we're less than a year away from the midterms. Um, do you think uh, the, the Democrats uh, will be affected one way or another uh, by whether or not the virus can get under control and whether or not the economic recovery um, is hindered or continues uh, at least in a, in, a, in a bolder way? Yeah, well, definitely it will be affected by what happens with the virus and definitely it will be affected by the economy. The The economy is always the biggest driver in elections. And I think right now the pandemic is one of the biggest drivers in the election. And so it matters more, I think, where you know what it's like when we start going into the new year and as we get closer to the election, because because uh, memories are quite short. Uh, what ha- you know, if, if there's a quick turnaround from this and it sort of is in the rearview mirror, then I think it's something that will have less of an impact. But if this is the trajectory and there continues to be problems like this, I mean, we don't know. You know, we keep hearing about new variants as they come up. Is there another variant? We we don't know what's going to happen. So there's a lot of unknowns. So I, I do think if he was able, if the president was able to get this under control, if we're able to have adequate testing and, and all of these things and people could have a somewhat normal life and the economy is doing reasonably well, then he's in good shape. But there, those are a lot of ifs. And Ramesh, there's this interesting dynamic going on on the on the Republican right uh, after Donald Trump came out uh, in favor of not just the vaccines in, in, a, in a bigger way than he had before, uh, but also talked about how he had gotten the booster and then he had his showdown with uh, Candace Owens, et cetera, et cetera. And it does seem like he is almost being outflanked on the right if he if other people decide to run against him and assuming he does run for president by governors who are not as pro-vaccine. Well, of course, there are always going to be some nuances there because uh, former President Trump continued to say he's not for any kind of vaccine mandate, which puts him in sync with a lot of those Republican governors. I really do think that one thing that we're seeing here, though, is a shift of COVID from being a pandemic to being endemic. And the politics of being uh, facing a COVID pandemic were in some ways really hard for the Republican coalition to address. Uh, but I think that the, the shoe may be on the other foot now, that, that as you shift to endemic COVID, it may be the case that the Democratic coalition has a hard time abandoning sort of, you know, lockdown and masking and school shutdown policies that have now, at the very least, outlived their usefulness. All right, Ramesh Kirsten, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Happy New Year if I don't see you before then. Coming up, a chaotic scene caught on camera. New body camera video capturing the tragic killing of a 14-year-old girl. Hear her parents' response. That's next. In our national lead, the grief-stricken parents of the 14-year-old girl killed by what apparently was a stray police bullet in a department store dressing room spoke out today. In a press conference a short while ago, the family of Valentina Origina Peralta demanded justice as they described the pain of losing their daughter under such circumstances. Yesterday, Los Angeles police released edited body cam and surveillance footage of the events that led to this tragedy. The videos show a very... Difficult situation as officers responded to multiple calls about a possible shooting in progress and encountered a different victim, a woman on the floor covered in blood. But as CNN's 
Josh Campbell reports, for Valentina's family, many questions remain about what exactly happened inside that department store this morning. Some of the video is disturbing. 14-year-old Valentino or Ajana Peralta was shopping with her mother when she was killed last Thursday. Shot in a dressing room where police say they couldn't see her behind a wall as LAPD officers pursued an assault suspect at a Los Angeles department store. The LAPD released these edited body cam and store surveillance videos late Monday. Showing the deadly shooting of the suspect, the shot that police believe killed Valentina, and the events leading up to the tragedy. Tuesday, Valentina's mother spoke at an emotional press conference. We heard screaming. We sat down and we hugged each other when something hit my daughter and it threw us to the ground. She died in my arms. Police say they believe Valentina was hit by a bullet that ricocheted off the tile floor and entered the dressing room wall. Valentina's mother had Ben Crump, one of the family's attorneys, read a statement on what she remembered that day. All of a sudden we felt an explosion that threw us both to the ground. That's when I saw white powder coming out of Valentina's body as she started having convulsions. I had no idea she had been shot. Her body went limp. Valentina died from a gunshot wound to the chest. Earlier surveillance video released by the LAPD shows the suspect, Daniel Elena Lopez, assaulting several women at a Burlington department store before police arrive. 911 and radio calls Thursday report the assault in progress. Then reports of a possible shooting. Employees hiding inside the location. Police body cam footage shows officers moving up an escalator, guns drawn, then finding a woman on the ground after she was hit repeatedly with a metal bike lock. She's bleeding. She's bleeding. One officer fires three shots, killing the suspect. Police say no gun was found near the body as officers searched the scene. Then police say they found Valentina in a dressing room. Unbeknownst to the officers, a 14-year-old girl was in the changing room behind a wall that was behind the suspect and out of the officer's view. Valentina's father breaking down, talking Tuesday about Valentina's life and her dreams. Her father's attorney says Valentina's family wants justice. What does justice mean to them? Justice is trying to examine and investigate thoroughly. They want to see accountability. Now, Jake, the attorney for the family says they're looking into a possible lawsuit against the LAPD. The department wouldn't comment on any pending litigation. But we are hearing from the Los Angeles Police Union today expressing their utter sorrow in their words. They're praying for the Valentina family. They also say they're praying for this officer who they described as completely devastated by what happened. Jake, tragedy does not begin to describe what happened here in Los Angeles last week. Today, looking in the eyes of the parents who had just lost their child, I got the sense of just unbelievable loss. Jake. All right. Josh Campbell in Los Angeles. Thanks so much. The district attorney in Westchester County, New York, has decided to not press charges against former Governor Andrew Cuomo over alleged inappropriate conduct. We learned today two women came forward with accusations against Cuomo. One was a state trooper who worked on the governor's detail when she says the governor asked if he could kiss her. She said she was worried about the consequences of rejecting him and said, sure, She says Cuomo then kissed her on the cheek. She also accused him of other inappropriate touching. A second woman said in a separate incident, Cuomo grabbed her arm and kissed her on the cheek without asking for permission. The DA's office says that it found credible evidence that both of those instances did happen. It called former Governor Cuomo's conduct concerning, but the office said 
they could not pursue criminal charges due to the, quote, statutory requirements of the criminal laws of New York. Multiple investigations into Cuomo's actions are still underway, including one by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. We have reached out to the former governor for comment. We have not yet heard back, but here to discuss is Richard Roth. He's an attorney and founding partner of the Roth Law Firm. Mr. Roth, thanks for joining us. Can you explain to us in simple terms the logic of the Westchester District Attorney's decision here? Sure, Jake. Thanks for having me. The logic is very simple. He literally kissed two women on the cheek. That is not enough to warrant criminal misconduct. Was it inappropriate? Was it a bit of an advance? Yes, but certainly, certainly it's not. It wasn't forcible to the extent that it's outrageous. You know, you carry stories like the last one, which is so sad. And it's just a shame that in Westchester County, Nassau County, I'll remind you that last week, Nassau County said that Governor Cuomo's conduct was also not sufficient to warrant criminal conduct. The Albany County police uh, police officer actually filed the charge without the district attorney's knowledge. There's a lot going on here, which is unfortunate. It's just, he's a single guy. Maybe he was a little bit, if you will, forward, but criminal conduct for kissing a woman on the cheek, I would think that the district attorney's office in Nassau, Westchester, New York, and Albany have something better to do. The uh, the state trooper alleged more inappropriate touching than just the, the kissing on, on the cheek. But I, I suppose what you're saying would apply to, to her other allegation as well. That's right. There's a state trooper who alleged a little more than kissing on the cheek. And then the second person is a woman in the White Plains at the White Plains High School where apparently they said she alleges and apparently the women are both credible, which is it's great that they came out. But they, she alleges that he grabbed her arm, pulled her in. And kissed her on the cheek. And um, yeah, the, the conduct is not criminal conduct. Is it inappropriate? Did he make them feel uncomfortable? Absolutely. But I think the Westchester County got this, uh, the district attorney's office got this right. And I think the Nassau County district attorney's office last week got it right. Now what's left is essentially the two more jurisdictions, both the New York County and then the federal courts, the federal uh, U.S. attorney's office will see if any of his misconduct is inappropriate. And this all stems again from of uh, Letitia James report, 168-page report that was issued in August of 2021. And these are all, if you will, ramifications of that report. All right, Richard Roth, thank you so much. Appreciate your insights. Still ahead, a warning that Iran is playing with fire as its nuclear capabilities begin to match its ambitions. An inside look at the high-stakes talk to keep the peace. Stay with us. In our world lead, the threat from Iran is real and only growing more dire. That's the conclusion in a new deep dive in the New Yorker magazine, revealing what's at stake in a new round of international talks aimed at halting Tehran's nuclear weapons ambitions. And the man at the center of it all for the U.S., Robert Malley. Let's discuss this all with Robin Wright, who wrote this piece for the New Yorker. Uh, Robin, great to see you as always. So you just published this article. It's called The Looming Threat of a Nuclear Crisis with Iran. So lay it out for our viewers. What's the real threat that Iran poses right now? Well, Iran has has achieved enormous advances in its nuclear program. Uh, President Trump tried to use maximum pressure to get Iran to roll back, but Iran, a paranoid uh, revolution, has instead accelerated not just its 
nuclear program, but also its missile program. And it now has the largest missile program uh, in the Middle East. And so at a lot of different levels, Iran is a threat far more today than it was at the time of the nuclear deal in 2015, which was one of the most important nonproliferation uh, pacts in the history of arms control. The Iran nuclear deal that you're talking about, the, that the Obama administration negotiated, only survived for two years. Trump abandoned it in 2018. Um, since that time, how much has Iran's nuclear weapons capabilities caught up to its ambitions? What are they able to do right now if they wanted to? Well, at the time of the deal, Iran would have taken at least a year to produce enough fuel for a nuclear weapon. That's one of the key steps to produce a bomb. Today, the breakout time, as they call it, is only three weeks. So the acceleration of Iran's capabilities is very alarming. Iran also has cut off access to its to the monitoring, the international inspectors who follow what Iran uh, is producing at home, which is part of the deal. That's been cut off for the past year after one of uh, the key nuclear scientists in Iran was assassinated, allegedly, by, by Israel. So it's achieved a lot um, in the last two years at, at, a, at a pace that, in a matter of months, Iran, if it decides to cross the threshold, could gain nuclear status. It could be the 10th country in the world to have a nuclear capability. In your article, you highlight Rob Malley, um, whom President Biden appointed to be his special envoy for Iran. He's someone who has a lot of history uh, in the region. He was on the team that negotiated the Iran deal uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, You write, quoting Malley in part, um, we're not going to agree to a worse deal because Iran has built up its nuclear program, Malley added. At some point soon, trying to revive the deal would, quote, be tantamount to trying to revive a dead corpse. The U.S. and its allies might then have to address a runaway Iranian nuclear program without a return to the deal, a senior State Department official said. It is more plausible, possible, and maybe even probable that Iran will try to become a threshold nuclear state. So what does that say about the high stakes involved as these talks resume? I mean, is there any hope? I think there's hope, but I think it is fading very fast. Remember, this was Biden's first major foray into diplomacy after he became president. And the assumption was that they could get back to uh, the point of the nuclear deal and, and roll back some of Iran's technological advances. The problem is that Iran has so many advances that what nation, if it has achieved breakthroughs, really wants to give it all up or even give up part of it? And building in the incentives, getting back to what the United States promised many years ago, there's no guarantee that the next president won't simply walk away from the deal again. And that's what makes Iran very reluctant to you know, give up what it's achieved. And the, I think the ultimate challenge is, even if we get back to the deal, even if both sides comply, Iran still has the knowledge of how to move forward. And that's something that we can't undo. Robin Wright, thanks. Another great story in The New Yorker by you. Coming up, a shooting spree across a major city ends with several wounded and killed. That's ahead. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.